Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. Please help us understand, God. Um, we know that you are worthy, but we are desperately needy. Make your truth plain to us, we ask. Teach us this day, we pray. In your holy name. Amen. Uh, this is one of the most um, humbling and beautiful prayers in all of the Bible and especially in the Old Testament. Yet many times Daniel's prayer in the first 23 verses gets lost because so much focus is given to verses 23 to 27 with the focus of these 70 weeks. So much is said about this historical timing of this chapter where people spend so much time doing mathematical equations about these seven weeks because they want to understand these, this prophecy. And yet the majority of the chapter gets kind of glossed over. Um, I really believe that this reveals something about our own human hearts. <laughs> we all want to know the future, right? But nobody wants to learn to trust in God instead. And that's one of the big takeaways from this chapter before we dive in. It's the reality that if we could do everything possible in our abilities to know what tomorrow would bring, we would do it. And yet God, in his grace and sovereignty, does not make some things in scripture that clear. And we need to, be, we need to learn to be okay with that. Instead of trying to figure out all of the details, God wants us to learn to trust in him knowing that he is in control. We can get caught up in wanting to know. Yet, like the title of our sermon today, which is The God Who Controls All of Time, it's important that we know that God commands all of it every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, Every decade, every century, and every millennia. They are all under his control. And this is what we have the opportunity this morning to learn in this text. The first thing we see in the first three verses is the posture of Daniel's prayer in verses 1 to 3. As usual, Daniel begins every chapter by time stamping it with a historical marker. Now we are in the first year of King Darius, the Mede. Between last week's chapter, chapter 8, and now chapter 9, roughly 12 years have passed. Darius has defeated the last Babylonian king, King Belshazzar, and has taken over the Babylonian Empire. 66 years roughly have passed since Israel has been deported into the land of Babylon. Daniel and the people of Judah were taken as exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And now they find themselves under a new ruler, King Darius from the Medo-Persian Empire. And for the people of God, this is a time of crisis. Because it is full of uncertainty because they don't know now what will happen to them given that they're under a new king. It is during this time of transition that Daniel comes to the word of God to look for comfort. He's not really sure what to make of where he finds himself. In verse 2, Daniel is reading the scriptures. And he begins to understand the length of time that Israel would be under God's judgment. As Daniel is reading in the book of Jeremiah, there would have been two texts that would have stood out to him. You can write these down if you want to look at them later. Jeremiah 25, 1 to 14. And Jeremiah 29, 1 to 11. Both these texts mention 
the 70-year period of judgment that Israel would be under, and then the coming restoration that they would experience as the people of God. Jeremiah was a contemporary prophet of the time of Daniel. They lived during the same time period, and Jeremiah wrote about Israel's captivity going into Babylon. And so we're going to look at just one of these two texts that I mentioned. But here's a really important thing. Both Daniel and Jeremiah are writing at the same time. And Daniel views Jeremiah's writings as Scripture, as being the Word of God. As someone from his own day who was writing, Daniel says that he is reading the Scriptures. But why is Daniel reading from the book of Jeremiah in the first place? How, do we, how does he know about these prophecies? Well, because Jeremiah actually sent a letter to the people of Israel while they were in exile under the king Nebuchadnezzar. This is one of the things that many people don't know. But if you look at Jeremiah 21, 29 verse 1, look at what it says. We have a text here. This is Jeremiah writing. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah writes and then he sends this letter to the exiles that are in Babylon. This is actually where the book of Daniel begins at this very moment with King Nebuchadnezzar. He besieges Jerusalem and he begins to deport the people of Judah into the land of Babylon. There are three de deportations. And during the final deportation of taking the people from the land of Israel, they decimate and destroy the temple of God and the whole city of Jerusalem. This is what Daniel refers to in the second verse of our text as the desolation. Another word for destruction. So we know that Jeremiah in verse 1 of chapter 29 says that he's writing this letter. And now look at what he says in this letter in verse 10. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Remember, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, one of the few people remaining. And he is speaking of the day when God will restore and lift his judgment from his people. Here's the beautiful part that we learn with Daniel. It's the word of God that Daniel is reading that drives him to pray. And verse 3 tells us that Daniel turns his face to seek the Lord. The first part of this prophecy that Jeremiah gave has come to pass. 66 years have already elapsed and the Babylonian Empire has just fallen. And so now Daniel is anticipating the day when the second part of what Jeremiah said will come to pass. And so he's reading God's word and he's wanting the restoration of Israel. To see the people go back to Jerusalem to be able to rebuild the temple. And so Daniel begins to fervently pray to God to fulfill his promise. If you've been with us over these bunch of weeks, you know already that Daniel is a man of prayer. We saw in Daniel chapter 6 that Daniel would face Jerusalem from his window and that he would pray three times a day. Well, we actually saw that it was Daniel's commitment to pray that landed him in the lion's den. 
So we know that Daniel is a man who's committed to pray. And here in our text, it is the truth of God's word that leads Daniel to have this burden to pray for his people. Here at Centerview Church, um, in, our belong, in our Become class, which is our second class that we teach here to people, this is how we teach people to pray. This is uh, one of the spiritual practices that we encourage that followers of Jesus Christ have the daily habit of exemplifying in their lives. It's that you would start your prayer time by reading the Word of God and by allowing what you read to shape your prayer time. Let the Word of God set the agenda for what you will pray instead of your own needs. Because this will help you stay focused on who God is and on His character and on what He has done. And his actions. So many times we come to pray. And it's as if we have a laundry list of things. That we would have God do for us. And yet it almost seems like we forget. The God that we're praying to. Because we don't allow his truth. His character. To lead that time of prayer. And so the best way that we can pray. Is by coming to his word first. And letting his word lead and guide us during that time of prayer. Does that make sense? Uh, this way we have, we have boundaries or we, we have tracks that will lead us and guide us each day as we go through the text. We learn from verse 3 of Daniel's posture as he prays. And it's one of humility. He pleads with God to show mercy. And we see that Daniel's prayer is not only verbal, but it's also visible. He does three things. He fasts. He withholds food from his body to show God that God is more important to him than food itself. And this is really what fasting is meant to be. A fasting is not meant to twist God's arm to get him to do something he doesn't want to do. Fasting isn't something that we should even do when we have an important decision coming up in our life. Actually, we should have this continual habit of fasting. Of setting time aside where we are showing God that we depend on him even more than our own daily basic need of food. So Daniel fasts. Daniel also dresses himself in sackcloth. He puts on animal skins that would intentionally irritate his skin as a sign of his repentance and of the repentance that he desires for the people of Israel. And he doesn't stop there. He covers himself in ash. You know, ash from a fire. After it's, of course, cooled down. He's covered himself in ash. Black ash. As a symbol of the ruin that he and his people are experiencing as they are in captivity. You see, Daniel's posture of prayer is one of lament. He's demonstrating the heaviness of his heart. This is a prayer of urgency because he understands Israel's sin. So we see that this is how Daniel prays. Second, we see the purpose of his prayer in verses 4 to 14. In verse 4, Daniel begins his prayer with adoration. He begins praying by focusing on who God is. You see that clearly in the text. The Lord is great and awesome. 
He keeps his covenant and steadfast love towards those who love him and follow his commands. You see, Daniel knows his God. And it's clear by the description that we get that to Daniel, God is worthy of being worshipped because God is always faithful to his promises, to his covenant, to what he says. You see, God is a man of his word. Daniel knows that. And not only does Daniel know that, it seems that he's quoting here Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. Look at what Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, now listen to the words, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. Notice the words that Daniel uses in verse 4. They are identical to describing God's character and the promises that God makes. I'm not sure about you as a parent, but there have been a few promises that I have been unable to keep with my children. And my children, because they're awesome, they always remind me. Dad, you said, remember? They never remind me of the ones that I follow through on, right? <laughs> Dad, man, we're so thankful, man. Like you did nine out of 10. It's that one <laughs> that they always remind me of, right? But, Dad, remember that one you said we were going to go and we haven't gone yet? I'm like, yeah, but that, that's the yet because we're going to go. Yeah, but you said. And you get a bit of this sense here with Daniel in this prayer, with, with, with trying to remind God of what he's said and, and when God is going to make good on what he's said. But Daniel begins his prayer with adoration. He calls on God's faithfulness to how he had delivered Israel and rescued them from Egypt and brought them into the promised land and that he is still the same. So Daniel, in a sense, is speaking of the commitment that God has made to be in relationship with his people Israel. Does that make sense? He's saying like, God, I know the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but I know that you're still our God because I know the promises that you've made and you haven't given up on this relationship yet. This isn't the end. There's still more to come. And then D Daniel dives now in from verses 5 to 14 into confession. Daniel knows God, but Daniel also knows Israel's sin and what they've done. He says in verse 4 that the purpose of his prayer is to make confession. And he dedicates this long section to calling out repeatedly the sin of his people. So this is what Daniel prays. He's burdened for his people who are in exile. But he's also deeply aware of their sin. And listen, he describes it like this in these verses. They have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, Turn aside from God's commandments. God has tried to get Israel's attention through the prophets, yet they have not listened. And he includes everyone. No one is left out. Daniel shows us the culpability of every single Israelite, including himself. It's not as if Daniel is on the outside speaking to them or about them. And we know this because Daniel repeatedly uses inclusive language in these verses. He says, we, our, us, over 25 times. This isn't just Israel's sin. This is Daniel's sin. And he is standing as if he were the representative who is coming before God, just like Moses did when Moses would go up to Mount Sinai. Sinai. Now Daniel is putting himself in this position where he's standing before God, representing all of Israel in all of their sin, including himself. God, we have sinned. We have rebelled. Look at what we have done. leave this with you. How often is confession of sin a part of our prayer life? 
I'll submit to you that it should be a regular one. Then we get to verses 7 and 8, and Daniel knows that Israel is in captivity because God has acted righteously. And this is the part where we struggle with. God has rightly put his people in the position they find themselves in because of, his, because of their sin. And this brings great shame upon Israel. All of them are included, all of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, the nation Israel. Even those who are far away have been driven out of the land. They have great shame because Jerusalem and the temple is a wasteland. There is nothing left. It's disgraceful, their shame. And it's not hidden. It's public for all to see. I think one of the worst things that we can acknowledge when someone falls into sin that is a believer that has a public platform is that when their sin becomes evident, it brings upon great shame. And this is what Daniel is saying. God, I see my shame. God, I see our shame. And in verse 9, God calls upon God's mercy and forgiveness. And in verses 10 to 14, Daniel details Israel's sin now specifically and how they have transgressed against the law of God. Because someone could ask, but how has Israel sinned? What have they done wrong? How are we to know how to live in this life? What is good? What is bad? Because those lines seem to become blurred more and more. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Things that we deemed as being wrong and hurtful 50 years ago, today are right and celebrated. And we're in this place of ever-shifting right or wrongs that we don't know. And so what does God, what does Daniel bring before God in his prayer? God's own word. He brings them back uh, to the covenant, to the promise of the Old Testament that God had made with his people as the basis for knowing how God has sinned, how the people have sinned against God. And so he brings God back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God established his covenant with the people of Israel. Where God said, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I have commanded you, then, I, then all of these curses will come upon you and take over you. God makes it plain to his people, calling them to be obedient. And if Israel is obedient, guess what Israel will experience? Blessing. How many of you guys know that in every relationship there are boundaries and structures that we follow? How many of you guys know this? You know why I don't cheat on my wife? Because there are boundaries. Right? No? I don't know. Do, do you guys have boundaries in your marriages? If not, we're going to have to do like a marriage conference or something. But there are boundaries in every relationship. There are expectations, things that we expect each other to hold ourselves to, right? Christina expects me to come home every night. And I expect her to come home every night. Wait, you guys don't expect that? See, these guys laughing over here. But, and, and God, he, he establishes boundaries in the relationship that he has with us and with his people. And when we follow those, those boundaries which are healthy and good for us and which demonstrate relationship with God, that we desire to want to know him and follow him, God blesses. And when we don't, God curses. Why? To get our attention, to turn us back to himself so that we can see what we're missing out on. His protection, his covering, his blessing. And then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8 the curse that Israel is experiencing right now in this time in history. Look at verses 36 and 37. Deuteronomy 28 verses 36 and 37. Look at what it says clearly. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. 
and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all of the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. God says, if you don't follow, you don't obey, you don't hear my voice, this is what will happen to you. And, and this, is what God, this is what Daniel is calling on. As he is reflecting on Israel's sin, he is saying, we have not obeyed God. And so God has been right to put us in this position. How many of you guys have heard of timeout? How many parents are here? You can raise up your hands high. How many of you guys have ever used timeout? Right? How many of you guys know what we're talking about? These boundaries that we establish with our children. And within establishing these boundaries, when our kids veer away from those boundaries, we try to get their attention by having them sit and think things through. Israel is in timeout. It's been a very long timeout. And and but and here's the here's the here's the hard part. By the time we get to verse 14, it doesn't seem like Israel has understood or taken advantage of timeout. They still have not repented for their sin. They still haven't come to the conclusion that they're in exile because they have not listened to the voice of God or to the prophets that God has sent to them. They have hardened their hearts. This is a prayer of confession. And it's a prayer of intercession. Let me ask us. How often do you and I find ourselves praying, pleading on behalf of others? Like Daniel. Do you and I see the sin of our loved ones? Our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers, our uncles and aunts, our cousins, our extended family members. And that we feel so burdened by seeing that they're far from God that we cry out on their behalf. Because we so clearly see their sin and that they're in darkness and far from God. Not that it conjures in us a sense of condemnation and a finger pointing, but instead it breaks our hearts because we would want to see them to run to God, to repent and humble themselves. And for them to come to see that they have sinned against God. How often do you and I stand in the gap for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends? And we might say, well, that's on them. They're responsible for their own sin. Actually, I don't even know specifically what their sin is. That's not the point. <laughs> that you would know specifically what their sin is, but you know that if they're not following Jesus Christ then they have transgressed God's law. And that before God, they stand as sinners because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Because all are under God's wrath. But now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we want to see them be under and in Christ Jesus. And in order for that to happen, we need to intercede and pray. Do you know who is the easiest for us to pray for? It's typically our own. Right? I don't know about you parents, but I pray like crazy for my kids because I want them to follow Jesus Christ. I wish sometimes I would pray just as boldly and as ferociously for other people in my life. I pray you would also. So the posture of prayer, the purpose of prayer. Now we're going to actually look at the petition. What does Daniel actually ask for in this prayer? So there's a slide there. We've seen there's these three elements to Daniel's prayer. There's adoration in verse 4. There's confession of sin in verses 5 to 14. And then in verses 15 to 19, there is petition. What Daniel asks for. And you'll notice now that there's a shift in language. Listen, I know this is a lot. If you have to get up and stretch and go get another coffee or tea, please do so. Because we haven't even gotten to the fun part. But the language shifts now. And you'll see now that Daniel focuses on again who God is. He begins by looking back. 
in verse 15 to how God displayed his power in delivering Israel out of Egypt. It actually says there in the text in verse 15 that the other nations were watching, that God made a name for himself. How many of you guys know that? Like when you're watching the Olympics and there is an athlete that is not expected to win anything and they dominate a field and they win. And all of a sudden they've come out of obscurity and now they're like the next thing everybody knows what they are. This is kind of the language that Daniel is using. <laughs> Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and all of a sudden God comes out of nowhere. And he demolishes all of, Is all of Egypt's pagan gods. And he delivers Israel through plagues and through demonstration of his power. Everyone saw. Everyone was unnoticed that Israel's God was God, all-powerful. Because he displayed how he rescued them. And yet Daniel is still vividly aware of Israel's sin. And so he begins to look forward now. Calling on God to act justly. Because of God's anger and wrath, he prays that God would turn away his anger and wrath from his people. God is both righteous and gracious. He brought judgment. And now Daniel is waiting to see Israel's restoration. Because, God, because Daniel knows that God is faithful to his promises. You see, God will always do what he says. Here's the issue. Listen carefully. It's never a matter, it's never a question of if God will. It's always a matter of when. And we always get hooked up and all in knots about when God will do it. And all we need to learn to do is to keep holding on to knowing the fact that he will. It's just not in our time. It's just not in our way. And let's be honest, none of us like to hear that. And here's the interesting part. You see, Daniel knows that his people, they're out. They can't stand for God's name because they've sinned. So, God, so Daniel actually calls on God for God's own sake. Daniel tells God, God, like, intervene. Rescue your people. Let us go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, not for our sake, because we're not righteous, but do it for your own name. Like, do it for yourself. So that the nations won't mock you. So that you don't look weak in light of the other nations' gods and that somehow they look more powerful than you. And, and we see this in the text. Look at verses 16 to 19. Look at all the yours in there. We have that slide. There we go. Your city, Jerusalem. Your holy hill, your people, your own sake, your face shine upon your sanctuary. The city that is called by your name, your great mercy. For your sake, your city, your people who are called by your name. The whole focus of Daniel's petition to God is to say, God, do it for yourself and your own credibility and your own reputation. Don't do it for us because we don't deserve it. But please do it for yourself. Because I know that you are the awesome and great God. Because I know that you're always faithful to the covenant that you made, even in spite of us in our sin. So please act, God. And you look here right at the end in verse 19, it's as if he's pleading. God, act. God, do something, please. Not for us, but for yourself. I want to be honest. I've never prayed like this. I can't lie. Our prayers are so selfish so often. Have you thought about that? How often have you prayed for God to work for his own glory with you getting no benefit? When you just pray, God, do it, not for me. Because I know I don't deserve it, but do it for you. So that when people see your power and people see you working and people see you transforming, they look to you and you get all the glory. This is what Daniel is saying. We don't deserve it. But do it for your presence here on earth. Restore the temple so that people will know that God lives among us. That is his ask. Finally, 
we see a response to prayer in verses 20 to 23. Please hang in with me with this interesting text. While Daniel is still praying, the angel Gabriel appears to him in the form of a man. This isn't the first time that the angel Gabriel appears in the form of a man. Last week we saw when Roger preached that the angel Gabriel appeared in the form of a man to bring the interpretation of the vision that he had seen. And now the angel Gabriel appears again in the form of a man. And he has come quickly with a message. And there's an interesting little fact here about in this, these three verses. Daniel notes that Gabriel comes at, his, at a very specific time. He comes during evening sacrifice. This would have been roughly 3 p.m. Sounds weird. Yet this has a lot of significance to Daniel. To specifically tell us with this little detail that the angel comes at 3 p.m. Why? Why does Daniel tell us this? Here's the reason. Because Daniel still remembers temple worship way back when he was a little kid in Jerusalem. Daniel remembers that every day at 3 o'clock, he would go to the temple for the burnt offering of the day to worship God. And 66 years later, while a slave, he has never forgotten God's clock. See, Daniel doesn't structure his life around Babylon and Babylon's time. Daniel structured his life around God's clock and God's time. And 66 years later, he's still longing for the day to be able to go to the temple, to be able to worship God at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. See, Daniel understood that where you live doesn't matter. It's who you live for that does. And so the angel Gabriel comes and informs Daniel that he has been sent to help Daniel understand, to give him insight with the answer that God is going to give him in his prayer. I, I don't know if you notice there in the text, verses 20 to 23, if you look carefully, the angel gets dispatched to go to Daniel at the beginning of Daniel's prayer. You guys see it? Don't look at me. In God's sovereignty, he already knows what Daniel's going to say and ask for. So God sends the answer. The God who is in control of all of time, he already knows that Dan what Daniel's going to ask for. And so he sends the answer. What do we see here? God answers our prayers even before we pray for them. But we pray for them so that God would hear them more for ourselves than for him. Daniel, at the beginning of your prayer, I was commanded to come quickly to you. And it's actually while Daniel is praying that the angel intervenes and interrupts his prayer. And says, I came with the answer that you're looking for, Daniel. And I want to help you understand what it is that God wants you to know about what's going to happen. I am so thankful that God is not deaf. But that he allows us to cooperate with him through prayer on behalf of others around us. Amen? You guys missed out for those of you who were in last week, who weren't here with us last week. And if you think that's a dig to you because you weren't here, it is. Because you should have been here. You know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because last week, our sister Catherine, she asked us to pray for a friend of hers who was in the hospital. His name is Ali. Ali had a car accident two months ago. And his leg was broken and fractured. He needed surgery. And then he got a terrible infection in his leg. And at the beginning of not this week, of last week, he went into the hospital and his infection was so bad, the doctor said they were going to amputate his leg. How many of you guys remember? We prayed for Ali, right? Like we just did with Christian here. On Monday, Catherine said, we're going to pray for you as a church. On Monday, I get a call at 9 in the morning from Catherine. And she's like, William, guess what? I'm like, what? She's like, Ali called me Sunday at 1 o'clock telling me that the doctors told him that he no longer needs to have his leg amputated. But here's the thing. Ali said 
that the reason why he's keeping his leg is because we pray for him as a church. He said that to her. He's like, I know that I'm keeping my leg because your pastor and your church prayed for me. Because the doctor came in into my room at 12 o'clock. A man who doesn't know God, who doesn't follow God, who is associating the fact that we prayed for him with the fact that God is letting him keep his leg because we prayed on his behalf to God. God answers our prayers. But not always when we want or how we want. But he does answer. And when he answers immediately, it gives us sense for great joy. And when he doesn't, it gives us a great sense of hope. Until he does. Amen? Finally, the angel gives God's answer to Daniel's prayer. I want to say this up front. If you don't understand this section, don't worry, because neither do I. And I'm okay with that. The first, 23, the first 23 verses of this chapter, they're quite straightforward. Daniel reads, is reading the word of God. He's compelled to pray. He prays. And God hears his prayer. It's pretty straightforward. The remaining four verses are not. The timeline that God gives Daniel as his answer is very challenging to understand. And the angel begins in verse 24. He says this. The 70 weeks are decreed. In other words, God has decreed a period of time to restore Israel back to Jerusalem with the rebuilding of the temple. What's important for us to understand here is in the English, the original word in the Hebrew for week is period of seven. Because the number seven in the Bible represents perfection. Something which is complete. Something is whole. So God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days. And then on the seventh day, he, why did he rest? Because everything that was meant to be done and created were done in the first six. Seven, completion, done, all is good. The word here is a period of seven. So a better interpretation would be 70 Seven periods of time. Or 70 times seven. And when you multiply 70 times seven, you get 490 years. Can you guys all take out your phones so that we can do some math? That's a joke. Don't do that. Because I did. And it's quite complicated. The position I'm taking here, and there are others is that these are a literal 490 years, except for the last seven years. God is telling Daniel the hard news, that the exile will not just last the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied, but that they will actually last 490 years. This doesn't sound like good news, does it? It's hard news. You see, what God is trying to encourage Daniel to do is to have him place his hope not in the immediate fulfillment of the promise of Israel returning back to Israel, of Israel returning back to their land and to the restoration of the temple, but to instead look to a future date when God will restore Israel once and for all. You see, why? Well, because Israel will go back to their land eventually, but their sin problem will continue. And having the temple will not solve their sin problem, but there will be one who will come and who will fulfill everything that the temple exemplifies, which is the Savior, the Messiah. That Israel will, even though they go back to their land, they'll continue as captives, as slaves to sin until the Messiah comes to completely restore them. Are you guys with me still? This Messiah is the Son of Man. 
of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus Christ. And God wants Daniel to place his hope on this future coming Messiah. This time of 490 years will also include the coming of the Antichrist. The second coming of Jesus Christ. His second return. When he comes a second time, he will destroy the Antichrist and once and for all rule forever. All of this will occur during this period of 77s or 490 years. And God will accomplish six things. I think I have a slide for this. If not, here we go. Yes. He will finish the transgression. So listen to the language of completeness here, of what God does. He will put an end to once and for all. Who paid for all of sin? Jesus Christ on the cross. To atone for iniquity. To bring an everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and prophets. To anoint a most holy place. This is what verse 24 says. This was a lot for Daniel to take in and it's a lot for us to understand. So verse 24 here, it functions as a quick summary for the whole section. From Daniel's moment of getting this vision until the consummation of all things, the end of the world. It's a huge period of time. And then verses 25 to 27 break it down with some points. We get three points or three events in this timeline. I try to put it up here. Here we go. Take a picture. Take it home. Bust out your calculator and try to figure it out better than I can. So verses 25 to 27 break down these 490 years by focusing on these three events. First, the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem, which will occur in the first seven years, or, 70, or seven times seven, which equals 49 years. Second, the coming death and resurrection of Jesus the Savior during the next 62 sevens, or 62 times seven, which equals 400 and 34. Third and finally, there will be a time of persecution by the Antichrist and his defeat by the coming ruler, Jesus the Savior, at the end in the final seven, sevens, 49 years. How many of you guys are confused? Okay, but our hope and prayer today is that we leave here with hope, not confusion. Verse 25 starts with this first seven period which represents 49 years. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again and with square moths and in a troubled time. The timeline will begin with the going out of a word. That's what the angel tells Daniel. There will be a decree that will be made by an earthly king to send the people of Israel who are in exile back to Jerusalem. This happens in 458 B.C. with King Xerxes I when he issues a decree to Ezra to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It's at this point of this decree where... The first seven begins or where time begins to count down to where the stopwatch is hit on the button and time begins to advance. We can read about the unfolding of the people of God going back through this decree in the books of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah to see that during this period of time it was very challenging. During the time of Nehemiah, when he went back, do you remember? He was, they were rebuilding the walls of the city with a trowel in one hand and their sword in the other. Because the surrounding nations didn't want Israel to rebuild their city walls, Jerusalem and the city. So it was a difficult time. It was a time of war, a time of challenge. And then it is during this time that the anointed one, a prince, would come. This is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And this would happen or take place during the 62 sevens. 
You'll see there every time the word weak is used, I'm always using the word seven instead. Because in the original, we translate that weak word, that word weak, for seven periods of time. Are you with me? So it's in this fraction of time. From 458 B.C., when they go back, 434 years will pass. And if you were to subtract those two numbers, you come to 25 A.D. When Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry. And it's at this time, during the coming of this anointed prince, that he will be cut off. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks or the 434 years, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and it shall end and its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be a war. Desolation are, desolations are decreed. This is talking here about this period after that comes. And at this period that, that comes after, it talks about the life, the resurrection, the, the, the rejection of Jesus by his own people, the cruci his crucifixion, and his death. This is the anointed one that the angel is speaking to Daniel about. And we begin to see now the fulfillment of verse 24. Remember those six things? Look at the first three things of verse 24. We see that God will finish the transgression. That he will put an end to sin. And that he will atone for iniquity. These first three things of the six occur with the coming of Jesus and that through his death and resurrection, all transgression is paid for. All sin is dealt with. All iniquity is covered through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? Those things begin to be fulfilled in God's timing. We see these things beginning to occur. Jesus is rejected by his own people Israel. Yet through his death comes the end of transgressions of sins and the, and the atonement of all iniquity through Jesus. Jesus deals with once and for all by bringing forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice to bring his people back into right relationship with God. This is the final sacrifice for sin. Now there is no need for the temple. Remember the temple in the Old Testament where you would have to bring your unblemished animal before God for a sin offering for your sin? Now, Jesus is what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As a result of Israel rejecting Jesus, we see that there is another prince that raises up. And this prince will raise up to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Once again, God will bring judgment upon Israel because they have rejected the Messiah Savior that God has sent to help Israel. This happens in 70 AD. This prince is believed to be the general Titus. The city of Jerusalem rebels against the Roman Empire. So the Roman general comes surrounds the city of Jerusalem who's trying to rebel against the Roman Empire and he seals the city shut. And he starves them for three months before he attacks. At this point, everyone in the city is weakened. They have no strength. And when they finally besiege the city, they kill over 100,000 Jews. Everyone is slaughtered. The city is set on fire. The temple is brought to ruins. And this is what we see happening in verse 26. Verse 27, it's the last verse and everybody says, Amen. 
And he says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolation until the decreed end and is poured out on the desolator. The he now here of verse 27 has changed from this prince who many believe is the Roman, um, is the Roman general Titus to now represent the final antichrist. And this Antichrist, he will do two things. He will come to persecute the church. He will come to wage war against God's people and they will face great suffering for following Jesus, the Savior. The second thing is, is that the Antichrist will end all of worship. If you read there in verse 27, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings. No one on the earth will be allowed to worship God through Jesus Christ again. And now the Antichrist will try to impose himself as God on earth. He will want to rule the world. And we would call this in terms of what we call end time doctrine, in terms of eschatology as the great tribulation. Yet, this desolator, this destroyer, will only be allowed to rule for a certain amount of time until God decrees. And when God decrees, his rule comes to an end. And it comes to an end with the coming of Jesus Christ, the King, who will come to destroy the desolator, the Antichrist, once and for all. And now we see the fulfillment at the end of all things of verse 24. Look at the last three things of verse 24. To bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. God will renew all things. There will be a new heaven and earth coming, descending from on high, back to earth where everything will be restored once again. Jesus himself taught about these events in Matthew 24. The destruction of the temple, the coming of the great tribulation and the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself on the clouds to come to reign over the earth. Please stand with me. Here is what's important for you and I to focus on and what God desired for Daniel to focus on himself. These verses, these truths were not given to confuse Daniel or us. They were actually given to Daniel and to us to give hope. God displaying his sovereignty over all of creation by giving a rough timeline of the future events of history that would come to pass all in his perfect time where God is showing that he is in complete control. I want to encourage you not to get caught up with the math. You don't need a calculator to be a follower of Jesus. Amen? What we do need is to know that God is in control of all of time. And yet the events that he has decreed in the world will come to pass in his perfect time. This shouldn't hamper our prayers. It should instead cause us to be committed to passionately praying for God to bring upon his promises in his own time in our lives. Amen? You and I need to be the kind of people who pray like Daniel. Our prayers should be shaped and moved by the word of God, beginning our prayer time by reading God's word and allowing it to set the agenda of our prayers. And as we pray, we always begin with adoration, focusing on who God is and what he's done, and then moving towards a time of confession, not only for our sins and for our needs, but for the sins of others and their needs around us. And we always pray with humility acknowledging that God is all worthy and that we are all needy. And we do all of this remembering the work of the cross. You see, when we look to our sin and our brokenness, <laughs> it should no longer bring us shame. It should no longer bring us guilt like it did to the people of Israel. Why? Because that shame and guilt has been put on the shoulders of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And now today you and I live free with the hope in seeing that our Savior Jesus has already come, he's ascended to heaven, he's at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us as our mediator, and that he will come back. 
Amen? He will come back. And when he comes back, he will do away with all evil in all the world for all of time. Let us pray. God, your word is so rich. Your word is so profound. It is so deep at times that it is not easy for us to understand. But we pray that this day we would leave here, Father, with a greater vision of who you are. That you are in control. Even when we don't understand what is going to happen, you do. And so we leave here today with great hope, knowing that the anointed one, the Christ, has come. And that he has come to do away with all of iniquity, sin, and transgression. And now we await for that glorious day when you will come back again, Jesus Christ, to rule over the earth, to do away with the Antichrist, to decimate all evil, so that we could live with you forever, for all of eternity. This is our great hope. Let us worship God together. Amen.